Why are police photographing our license plate? What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Welcome to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. Our Reasonable Voice today is Ed Rogers, who's been on the show before. Ed Rogers, Ph.D., is the Chief Knowledge Officer of the Goddard Space Flight Center at NASA. Ed, how are you? Great. Good to be back on your show, Marcello. It's always great to talk to you. It's incredibly informative, and I know I... I make the old tired joke every time, but Ed allows it. We're going to be talking about many examples of of out-of-this-world thinking by NASA and its partners, its scientists and engineers. I mean, there are a lot of people working at NASA and and with NASA, and and Ed Rogers is certainly one of them very high up, shall we say, the table discussions. And, you know, speaking of table discussions, Ed, I don't think I've mentioned this enough lately. People at NASA... First of all, the tremendous collaborators, but you are constantly talking years ahead of the rest of us knowing anything. Is that is that correct? Tell us about that. Well, it, it, thank you. It's always uh, good to talk to you about these subjects. I appreciate you and your audience uh, being interested. Um, NASA works on a lot of things that are very long time frame. If I if I get your drift, yes. And so we plan things and have discussions that have deadlines in 2030s or uh, 2020s, if not not later. Mm -hmm. And and not all of us are used to thinking in terms of those kinds of time frames. Yes. And often people say, well, why why can't you just build it and do it? Why does it take 15 (laughs) years (laughs) or 10 years? Um, And there's, it might take several years to figure out a plan. And then you have to get it in the in the priority list because everyone would like their mission to be done and their science that they've worked on for their career, say a physicist or something, has an important question to be answered. There's lots of important questions. We have to figure out which one we can afford to answer, which one we should answer first, and then which one second. So all that gets sorted out. That takes some time, and there's a process for that. And then it might take you five or six or seven years to actually build the thing and design instruments that can do what you were dreaming of doing, you know, now eight, ten years ago. Mm-hmm. And then if you launch it to something, it may take years to get there. If you're going to an outer planet, say you're going to Pluto, it might take you years to actually reach there. Mm-hmm. And then it might take you another several years to actually process the data and figure out what it's telling you. 
and having a whole field of scientists pouring over the data as it comes back from these missions and actually putting it together with other data and other things we already know and, you know, getting a better picture of how the universe works. So these are very long-term prospects, and you have to have an appetite for that uh, to work uh, to work here, really. Absolutely. And I can see how most people might not uh, realize that. I remember we had a conversation once and uh, about the the discovery of new a whole new set of planets uh-huh. and everyone and of course uh, the tv media was showing these pictures of these new planets and i'm going well how can they see those and one of the first things you told me in the the, the next interview we had after that was well we can't see them yet but we know they're there because and they were this lo- just amazing explanation in 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 ways that I could understand how you know they're there because of the various things that are going on in the universe. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, I just I I thought that was a marvelous conversation. But I want to get to our marvelous conversation today because I have to say when I asked Ed to come on the show again and asked what he wanted to talk about, he brought up something that I just am still finding so fascinating. I mean, everyone knows I have political views, but regardless of one's political views concerning climate change and global warming, scientists know one of the biggest changes to global agriculture is less about the food itself as it is about the water and how we use the water to grow food. It seems to be a cycle turning in on itself, if I may say so, but I'll ask Ed, what, what, are, what are NASA and scientists doing to, uh, uh, for an increasingly hungry world, I fear? Uh, oh, go ahead. It's a great question uh, and something a lot of people are very interested in. NASA co-op collaborates with a lot of different agencies, uh, mostly, of course, U.S. agencies that are doing agricultural research work or, and global work as well as work in other countries trying to help predict these things and, and be better at forecasting so that farmers can get the best advantage they can get from you know the rainfall and water resources they have. Mm-hmm. So one of the interesting things that, uh, just as an example, which I think is just extremely fascinating of how the scientists at NASA and those who work with NASA uh, and our is a large contingent of folks from across the country and the world, really, who work with NASA. Uh, figured out some ways to look at this because water. We might you might think, well, there's no shortage of water on the Earth mm-hmm. per se. They say the Earth is two thirds water, or whatever the ocean. But more than that, there's also no shortage of fresh water if you count the lakes and you know uh, volumes of water that we can actually put our finger to and say, well, there's fresh water. But where is it and how accessible is is water, as we know, is a little difficult to move, and it's difficult to move in large quantities Mm -hmm. enough to sustain cities, you know, people, populations who consume a lot of water on a daily basis. And it's particularly valid for agriculture, which uses even larger volumes of water if you're talking about irrigation of large areas of cropland and things like that. And then there are people who are dependent on those crops which says indirectly they're dependent on that water yes. because the crops are dependent on the water. So this is where it comes down to the meaning. And so what, they, what they've done is said, well, how can we figure out where water is in the earth, water that we can't see? Mm-hmm. Because the water we see in the lakes is one thing, but there's a huge amount of water that's stored in aquifers underground yes. that flows, moves, comes up in wells or is pumped out in wells or people draw in buckets out of wells depending on where they are. And that water is absolutely essential 
mm-hmm. for ongoing agricultural purposes upon which millions of people depend on, upon that food. Yes. And if that water is at risk, then so are the people depending on that food. But that water is difficult to see. You can't go around the world drilling holes everywhere. I mean, you can, but it's very expensive and mm-hmm. time-consuming and would not necessarily tell you things. So what they figured out, and I don't know how they figured this out, but I'm not a scientist. I'm just telling you what they did. You can be as amazed as I am. So it turns out that water, uh, when it's saturated in the earth, changes the density of the earth. And the density of the earth, meaning the material of the surface of the earth, mm-hmm. that density has a stronger gravitational pull because it's denser, more yes. material, where there's wet soil, then there's dry soil. So these huge aquifers, which are huge deposits of water underground, um, Think of an underground Lake Erie. You know, mm. you covered it with dirt. I mean, this huge amounts of water. Yes. So that water changes the gravitational pull of the Earth over that specific area where that water exists. So what they said, maybe we can measure that. And how they figured out how to measure it is, is they sent a pair of satellites called Grace. Yes. Uh, that's the nickname for this satellite, which is called the Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment, or Grace. Mm-hmm. If someone wants to look up the website and read all about this. Uh, but it basically consists of two satellites that orbit the Earth and have a beam between them, very high intensity, very accurate beam, mm-hmm. that tells how far apart the satellites are, however many miles apart they are. Yes. And they're circling the Earth in this formation. So the trick is when the first satellite, the leading one, passes over an area of the Earth, let's say Mount Everest, for example, clearly has more mass than some plane nearby because the mountain's sitting there. Yes. So that extra mass pulls on that satellite a little bit faster and makes that satellite speed up. Mm. So the satellites separate in distance. Of course, when the second one comes over, it catches up, and so they go back to their original distance. But mm. for that moment, their, their distance increases slightly by the fact that the first one is pulled earlier than the second one. Yes. And you know where you are over the top of what part of land, and you can say, aha, we have detected a stronger gravitational pull here than there is over there. And so if you do that around and around the Earth, then you map out these gravitational variations over the surface of the Earth, which is interestingly enough that you could do it in a, such an indirect manner. Yes. Uh, and so then, of course, every time you pass over Mount Everest, you get a similar reading. It changes very, very slowly. What is it, half a centimeter a year or something like that? It's growing. I'm not sure it's moving, but imperceptible in terms of daily measurement. Mm-hmm. And so you can kind of, so, okay, we're, we're over Everest again. That's fine. We, we know that. There's an extra little pull every time we pass over Everest or another mountain range. But when you pass over these areas where there's big aquifers of water, like over the Midwest U.S. or over northern parts of India or China or other areas of the world, there's an aquifer you can't see, and that gravitational pull pulls on the satellites a little bit just like Everest does because the ground is denser where it's wet. But that changes and it changes over the seasons. And mm-hmm. so you can map that and you can actually detect the decrease of that water in the ground. Mm-hmm. And so what was alarming was not that it goes up and down with rainfall say, during the monsoon or the wet season, dry season in places of the world, but over the years, and the GRACE has been operating for 15 years, you can actually track that massive aquifer of water being depleted year by year which tells you that the people who rely on that water for agricultural purposes and the millions of people who rely on agriculture are at risk. Yes. And so this has actually become a policy issue in India. Uh, the last time I was there last year, I was reading in the paper while I was talking to students about this mission and sharing what it had discovered uh, and confirmed, 
that this was now policy and they were making water sustainment policies where you needed to use water and make sure the aquifer was refurbished and we don't draw more water than the aquifer can you know get replenished each year by the rainfall in the mountains etc cetera, etc cetera. so they're trying to address this mm-hmm. before it becomes a irreversible crisis and so th- that's just amazing that and we think well what is nasa doing just because there isn't an astronaut you know landing on the moon this week mm-hmm. uh, we think you know what, what have you guys been doing the kinds of things they're doing are just amazing and they're not yes. i want to say behind the scenes because they're not really behind the scenes they're, they're really at the forefront we just don't recognize the, the role that they're playing and that's just one example I, I just think it's fascinating that they one figured out you could measure it two measured it over years showed yeah. something interesting and people are actually doing something about it i mean that's just direct informative to make our lives better or help us avoid making them worse you know, accidentally uh, in another case. So, I mean, that's just, it's just exciting to see people doing things like that. And there are many, many examples of this kind of thing. So I think that's the one you're referring to about water. Exactly. And irrigation. And it's called the Grace Mission, if you want to look it up and yes. find out about how it works. Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment, the yes, acronym the GRACE. Yeah, the acronym is GRACE, just mm-hmm. like the word GRACE. Yes. But I'm going to ask you just to make, I, I'm sure you did, but explain to me the, the the principle behind the twin satellites. The way that works is because with the, the two different arrival times over the same target, they uh-huh. get a different reading and therefore can measure what's going on with water on Earth. Is that... The- so the actual data that the satellites send us is actually the distance between the two satellites. That's uh-huh. actually what it's sending us. So there, say it's 10 miles, I don't, I don't know what the distance is. Uh-huh. It's some distance in space. But it's, and so the, it measures that distance to the to the a very small degree. I, I, again, I don't know the details, I'm not a scientist, but mm-hmm. think in terms of, you know, millimeters or even smaller. Yes. It's very, very accurate over a long distance. It's a laser in space kind of thing. Yes. And so as the first satellite moves a little bit more quickly when it passes over, a mass, it, it, that distance increases slightly because the second satellite hasn't been affected yet. Yes. So all it's actually measuring is the distance. So it's 10.0001 miles now, let's say. And then a minute later, it's back to 10 because the other one caught up. Mm-hmm. That's all it's measuring. Okay. And so it's just measuring the distance between the two satellites, but those happen according to the gravitational variations that exist at the, on the surface of the Earth by mountains and aquifers and other things. And so you can map that if you go round and round the Earth many, many times, which these satellites do, then you, you get a map of the surface of the Earth, gravitational, very minor variation. Everest being an obvious example we can all relate to. It's a big piece of land that sticks up, and there's obviously more, more dirt and rocks in that particular place of the Earth than there is some other place. Okay. And so it measures those differences as they change over time. All right. And, uh, and this, you know, uh, when I was very young and stupid, I remember saying once to uh, someone in college, I know I've told you this before, uh, why on earth are we flying to the moon? There's so much we need to do on earth. Well, every time you, <laughs> exactly. And you may laugh at me because I have many times as no, well. No, it's true. It, and, and so I wanted to point out something else that's interesting about these kinds of missions. A Grace mission, as I mentioned, had been up op- in operations for 15 years. Mm. Well, that's the end of its life. And so uh, just last month on the 22nd of May, we launched the great new- follow-on yes, mission, yes. which is going to go on and measure these kinds of measures. Because once you measure something like that, 
and it's so clearly connected to human well-being on Earth for millions of people. Mm-hmm. How can you say, well, we're done with that, we're going to switch that one off and not do that anymore? Exactly. Oh, no, 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 no. We need more measurements to continue to track these things to see if, for example, we're making a difference. Yes. Are we improving? Are we, are we still in risk of having a crisis or whatnot? So you become obligated to sustain these kinds of measurements, especially when they're so... So it's kind of good and bad news. We did something that was an experiment, and it turned out to really be important to human well-being on Earth. Yes. Relatively, not really bad news, but sort of the other side of the story is we can't stop measuring that or we'll look like we're putting people at risk once you've measured. So now we have another mission, and this mission was done actually in partnership with the Germans and launched on a... uh, rocket from Vandenberg on a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. Hmm. So things are changing. Exactly. We launched that on a new new company that didn't exist 15 years ago uh, with a partner from Europe, and uh, we're carrying on making those measurements uh, for the, the you know, pretty much the good of the world, not just the U.S., but yes. the human, and yeah. this turns out to be really important. So, so you get kind of caught having to sustain, but you can't sustain everything. Yes. <laughs> And so this becomes a problem why I mentioned earlier, there's always this prioritization, which things are important, which mm-hmm. things can wait till next year, and, you know, that kind of thing. Exactly. And it's, a, it's difficult, because they're all good. They're right. all wonderful, cool science things that we'd love to do. Yes, and, and extremely helpful. And I should go back also to one of our original points, the follow-through, follow-up of GRACE was probably discussed and decided upon years ago, too. Yes. That took years in the planning because yes. it's being launched last month. You know that started years ago, of yes. course. Wow. All right. We're going to take a short break and be right back. It's always fascinating to, to talk with Ed Rogers, the Chief Knowledge Officer at the Goddard Space Flight Center at NASA. We'll be right back. We're going to ask him, among other things, what happens if we are left with a choice um, we need more water to, to grow food, but if we use too much water to grow food, we hurt the agriculture that is the food people. We're going to ask Ed. He knows. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome to the Indy Film Minute. In 2006, an inconvenient truth told us that global warming was upon us, that it was caused by the actions of mankind, and that the consequences would be dire if we took no action. Ten years later, broad predictions have coalesced into horrific specifics, and climate change accelerates. Really? Who says so? Important, trustworthy people say so. Check out the eye-opening documentary, The Age of Consequences. These aren't our simultaneously lauded and vilified scientists talking, but important and thoughtful world leaders, those who bear frontline burden. They must plan for our survival. One of the first countries to go underwater will be Bangladesh. This will be a flashpoint. Did you know there is already a fence surrounding the entire country for controlling the inevitable mass migration? Many of the biggest crises of our times, Syria, the Sudan, the failed Arab Spring, and others, are already tied to climate change. With shocking imagery driving their points home, the predictions of these world leaders are grounded in grim reality. We at the Indy Film Minute are not political animals. We only watch movies and bring your attention to the good ones. This one is a powerful eye-opener. Watch it. You'll see. The Age of Consequences. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. Our Reasonable Voice today is Ed Rogers, Ph.D., 
Chief Knowledge Officer at the Goddard Space Flight Center at NASA. We have been talking about GRACE, something we can all use. Uh, and we are talking about the GRACE in Outer Space. It's an acronym for Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment involving twin satellites traveling around the world, discovering the changes in our water supply on Earth. Did I get that all right, Ed? That works. Okay. All right, you've been mentioning, you know, aquifers, uh, uh, huge water supplies under the earth. In an age when people, some people, are concerned about using 1.1 gallon of water to grow one almond uh, and, and, you know, safe food, clean water supply, uh, water running out or whatever, what happens, if you feel this is even a logical question, what happens if the choice is between growing food and depleting Earth's natural water supply, perhaps outrunning the Earth's ability to replenish the water if we're growing too much. That's my question, and I guess this... Go ahead. Yeah, it's a a thorny question. Yes. And several things make it thorny, because uh, often it might be one group of people uh, sitting somewhere thinking about a policy for water usage and sustainability at a planet level. Mm -hmm. But there's another group of people who live very locally who face, you know, life or starvation based on their ability to use that water tomorrow. Exactly. So the temporal distance between these and, and 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 the cost, personal cost between them is also different. And so this makes it a very difficult question for someone to make decisions for someone else. Mm-hmm. about sustainability or things when then they cost. And so you see things like, well, how do we uh, compensate may not be the right word. Uh, it's not really compensate, but mitigate or, you know, assist these people who will be directly affected by, say, a policy of, they were mentioning in India, using less water to not deplete the aquifer. How do you help them uh, successfully farm either there or somewhere else or change their practices or use less water intense methods or, you know, whatever. There needs to be some package of things. Yes. Now, that's not really NASA's business. Exactly. Uh, NASA is in the information and science business. We like to uh, say, you know, we're, we try, and I think it's important that we retain that, you know, credibility stature yes. of, of creating uh, methods of finding out ways of getting information that inform such debates so that they are done in a more informed manner as, as opposed to saying, well, we see the data and I personally think. Mm-hmm. We may personally have opinions and ideas, but that's not really our, our role in the debate because I think you need to you need to stay with your role to maintain your credibility of we're here to provide accurate and unbiased information. And I, I think by and large, NASA does a good job of that. There's always yes. individuals who get carried away, of course, on any one side. And I'll, I'll give you one one interesting example. There are obviously lots of concerns about changes of climate and water usage and things like that uh, that would be in, would be interrelated. So as climate would change, rainfall for perhaps would change, local water resources might change for, for, for the worst if lakes dried up, and there are places where lakes have dried up around the world by, by being overused. On the other hand, it's also clear that as climate change, there are areas of land that are not currently usable agriculturally that would become available to be used agriculture. And they might be very rich land, mm-hmm. uh, lands that are now marginal, you know, too cold, uh, too wet. You know, there's, there's large areas of land. It's not for us to say, 
which one of those is a better is it better to let a lake dry up in a semi-desert area and in, and then have people begin to farm in an area that it was too cold to farm before because that's not a decision that nasa can make mm-hmm. what nasa can do is to provide best information we can to say this is what it looks like what's happening and here's what we think might happen and here's the data that that tells us why we think that's happening and then some policy people have to sit down with all those people involved because you're involving many people's lives and livelihood and in some cases in other countries yes. and other cultures and things and all, all kinds of complex questions but it's not as cut and dry oh, what I know. saves the holiday mm-hmm. Yeah, what saves a Hollywood person's house in Florida may not help somebody somewhere else. Exactly. Yeah, it's not it's not a black and white trade one for zero. There's almost there's always some trades on other sides, and those are to be determined, and hopefully they'll be determined in sort of some rational, meaningful discourse manners. That that would be the objective, and if NASA can play a role in providing meaningful information, then we'd help that discourse and that discussion be uh, more intentional and hopefully have better results. Mm. Was GRACE invented, created initially just, if that's the right word to use with anything that's NASA-oriented, just to study the Earth's gravitational forces, or was it always planned as something that would find out what was going on with the water on Earth? It was primarily focused at water. Okay. Um, but it was focused on measuring ice sheets and uh, and, sea, and and any processes that are responsible for sea level rise and ocean circulation and things like that. I don't think global groundwater resources was an accident, but it wasn't the only thing or maybe even the primary thing they were That's looking it. at. But it turned out to be very... Yes. Very insightful, yes. and uh, became one of the things that it was well known for because it was quite dramatic, and it showed uh, something quite critical happening in several places in the world. Northern India is one of them. Yes, um, mm-hmm. among the its innovations, Grace has monitored the loss of ice mass, and I know you've just mentioned from uh, Earth's ice sheets. It's improving our understanding for uh, sea level rise, for instance, and ocean circulation. I mean, these are the kinds of things I think we on Earth are seeing in some areas, as you pointed out. I mean, things I I have at home in in Florida, and it's a very different situation with the oceans than it is in New York City or Washington, D.C. Enlighten us on that, if you would. Yeah, so... Ice sheets are complicated. I'm not an expert in ice sheet mass by any means or any stretch of imagination, but uh, I do know that these measurements are a little more complicated. So what gets a lot of the attention is when a piece of an ice field, glacier, or, or, or floating ice sheet in the ocean you know, breaks off like in Antarctica and melts or in the Arctic region and it's, and it's shrinking or glaciers are retreating. That tends to get a lot of news, and it, as it should. Mm-hmm. There is also places where the snowfall and ice pack is increasing. Mm. So, uh, which doesn't lead you to jump to some alternate conclusion. It leads you to say, this is complicated. And there's some complex things going on here. I, again, I, I'm not the expert on these earth science matters. I, I like to brag about how complicated and tricky our missions are, yes. that they can figure <laughs> out some of these things. And so they've, they've caught a lot of these nuances. And they says, well, we need to, and so as a scientist says, you know, they always want to keep looking for further. And so you ask one question and you go find an answer and you're like, 
Yes. I wonder if we could do this now. Yes. You know, so yes. one question always leads to another question. So, for example, the mission we had that primarily was measuring ice sheet depth, which was called ISAT, has, has uh, finished its operation, and we did not have a follow-on mission ready to go at the time that it, that it ended. Mm-hmm. So what NASA did to be saying, look, look, again, like the water, it was very important to measure these ice sheet masses and depths that trend them over time, right? You want to measure them year over year over year. You don't want to have a 20-year gap. Yes. Not know what happened. It could have gone up or down. And so we've been flying an airplane over Greenland hmm. and parts of the Arctic to take images of these ice sheets to give us data. It's not as comprehensive as a satellite, which covers the whole area relatively, you know, relatively efficiently. Yes. But it gives us some data so that we don't have a blank, you know, eight or 10-year gap. Mm-hmm. between the time ISAT finished and then we're preparing to launch ISAT 2 this next year, which would be a follow-on mission, but at a much higher fidelity to measure the ice volumes that are in these glaciers and in these ice sheets so we can continue to track that. So to, to fill in that gap so we didn't have a data gap, we've been flying a plane called Mission Ice Bridge, mm-hmm. meaning a bridge between the two missions yes. to collect that kind of data. So when necessary, we'll be innovative to you know take an alternative path because getting that kind of data is really crucial to knowing really what's going on. It's very easy to, you know, get any one piece of data and kind of jump to conclusions. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, you can go find a place where the ice is increasing and jump to one conclusion. You can go find another place where the ice is melting and falling off, you know, and, and claim some other conclusion. It, it's more complicated than that. It, it probably, it looks like things are, you know, going in one direction, but how fast and what's driving it is not as quite as obvious as it may be on the evening news. Gotcha. Like they talked about the Magnificent Seven. That was the name I couldn't come up with her in the oh, last the segment. planets, yes. Yes. When they, when they found the planets around that uh, star formation. Yes. Yeah, and then the newspapers were quick to print pictures that looked like something out of Jurassic Park. Yes. Know? And I was so, uh, I was so glad yeah. we talked after that because I was going, wait a minute. Uh, that but, was amusing to people inside NASA, although it's a bit alarming because then people call up and want to know how we took the picture. Yes. And they're like, that was an artist who drew a picture. And all we said was there were seven planet-like objects, and we can tell them indirectly because there's some obscuring of light from the sun. So it tells us something's going around the sun, Yes. the star. Yes. But we can't see what's on the planet or anything. Uh, you know, it's hard enough to see what's on uh, Venus without yes. going there in a probe. Exactly. All right. Before we go, I do want you to tell us about how GPS signals from satellites in outer space can give us information or even predict winds inside hurricanes. So here's another great little story. Thanks. I appreciate your invitation. I love telling these stories. This is a mission called Cygnus, C-Y-G-N-S-S, C-Y-G-N-S-S, if you want to Google it or look up and get all the details. But here's a fascinating story of a scientist who who led this, Chris Ruff, from the University of Michigan, uh, wanted to measure winds inside cyclones, which occur in the tropics. Yes. And which are hurricanes in the tropics. So they wanted to figure out how to measure the two things are important about predicting these storms. One is the direction, of course, and we see that on the news all the time. Is the storm going to hit Florida or the Caribbean? Where is it going to go? You know, it's forming out over the ocean. Where is it going to go? We always hear that. The second one is the intensity. Is it a level one, two, three, four, five, you know, kind of hurricane? So we're used to these kind of, but those are the two big questions that matter the most to, you know, listeners, so to speak, or the public. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to figure that out. 
there's models and all kinds of predictive. You see these guys drawing lines on their weather screen saying it could go here, it could hit New Jersey, you know, whatever, trying to give you the odds and whether it'll be a one, two, or three. So what they found, or they, they, they understood from, from research, is that the wind speed at the surface of the ocean has a lot to do with predicting what the intensity of the storm will be and how is it growing, because that's where the energy comes from, the warm oceans, yes. water with the air and all the interactions, how that happens, the physics of all that. So how do you measure the wind speed at the level of the ocean surface? Because what you do now is you fly an airplane through these storms, but you're not going to fly an airplane at the ocean surface level. It'd be way too dangerous. Exactly. Dangerous as enough as it is. So getting the wind speed at the surface of the ocean was the trick. How do you do that? What they figured out in a nutshell was we could do this indirectly because GPS satellites already send signals to the Earth continuously bombarding the Earth with a signal. Your phone picks it up and then triangulates between two or three of those satellites and tells you where you are. Yes. But the signal is a, is a radio kind of signal that's being shot down to the Earth from these satellites. They said we could pick up that signal as it bounces off the ocean surface. And by the degree of scattering, it would tell us how wavy and choppy the surface of the ocean is. Mm. And the waviness and choppiness would tell us how high the wind is. Yes. Wow. So without even shooting anything down here, just putting up a receiving dish and aiming it at a certain angle in relationship to a GPS satellite to where these storms are, we can pick up the scattered reflection and get the waviness and predict the wind with the wind, we could predict the intensity of these storms. And they figured out how to do this, and they launched this, this group of satellites, and they did it. I mean, it's just it's, it's, uh, it's incredible <laughs> thinking yes. to think ahead that far. I mean, obviously, once you explain it, oh, yeah, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. I can see how it's two and two and two, and, you know, adds up. Sure. But to think of these things in advance and propose them and then figure out how to build an instrument that measures the scattering of a GPS signal, which is obviously not what the GPS signal is intended to, for originally, right? Mm -hmm. It's meant to tell you where you are on the freeway, or you're lost, or you took a wrong turn, or recalculating. Yes. You know, <laughs> uh, as, as, as you've made a wrong turn. And so it works wonderfully for that. And so to use it for free yes. to figure out something else is just, again, incredibly innovative. And this kind of thing goes on all the time inside NASA. Small, smaller to larger type missions, and uh, I, I, we really don't do a good job of telling the kind of smart things that we do. We, mm -hmm. we get big results, and the media, you know, they want, you know, life discovered on Mars, or they want <laughs> astronaut lands on the moon. I mean, that, that's what will get their attention, and, and that's fine. The media and the public love that, but these things are really the exciting things that are driving the day-to-day -day science across NASA, and they're just, they're just fascinating, and I, I'm just so privileged to be able to work with these kind of folks. You know, I don't know that I've ever said this to you, but one of the byproducts of these wonderful conversations, and I assure you my listeners and I are very interested in how one project leads to another, years in the planning, and then there it is, and then that leads to another. Because as you say, if you have the right level of intensity of curiosity to begin with, once that curiosity discovers something, it leads you to other questions, not just an answer, Absolutely. but other questions. But the thing I wanted to mention, I don't think I've ever said, and I want to say this, one of the, one of the great byproducts of having a conversation with you is that I get to hear in your voice the same excitement that I feel listening to you, and yet you are there every day and you still have this same excitement. That's got to be an incredible way to get up every morning. <laughs> it, it's a, as I said, it's a privilege to work with these kind of folks yeah. who do this kind of work 
and and you get paid for it. I yes. mean, it's wonderful. The nation has invested in NASA. Yes. And NASA people work very hard to return a wonderful investment to the American people for doing that, for which we are grateful to be able to work on these kinds of things. And it is a privilege. And mm-hmm. there's obviously a lot of people who would like to work and work with NASA. There are alternatives. There are other companies doing space things, but there aren't really any opportunities to do the cutting edge science except mm-hmm. at NASA because it's not commercial. Mm-hmm. It's not for a commercial. If we hand it off, what we learn gets passed off as in the water or GPS or other things. But the cutting edge stuff initially is done for discovery and for human learning. And it's just a wonderful place to work. Just to make certain that everyone got what you just said, because I know we've talked about that before. And that is the idea that commercial or private enterprise is replacing NASA is really mistaken. But that NASA, as you say, is in the business of discovery and research and making the technology uh, available uh, and and accessible. And then if, as I think you said, I'm paraphrasing you, but I think you said this to me once, and then if private enterprise, commercial companies, wish to uh, take that information and build a profitable business around it, uh, NASA's fine with that. Yes? We should be. Yeah. And there's lots of discovery that needs to be done. There's no shortage of opportunity. Exactly. It's not like you guys went somewhere and retired. <laughs> We're not running out of the universe to discover. Exactly. Exactly. All right, Ed. It is always a pleasure. I'm so sorry we have to go, but we need to. I know you're on the run. You're always traveling and, uh, you know, and, and doing discovering new and wonderful things to be well, discovered. Well, thanks for the opportunity to talk to you and your audience. I, I always appreciate it, and it uh, reminds us of how lucky we are to do this kind of work. Thanks, Martel. Thank you. Ed Rogers, Ph.D., Chief Knowledge Officer of the Goddard Space Flight Center at NASA, has been our reasonable voice today. Thank you all for listening, and all the best to you, Ed, and everyone at NASA. Bye now. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Imagine that one day another planet like ours should appear on the horizon. This is the setting for the surprisingly human, spare little story of another Earth. Driving under the influence, young would-be astrophysicist Rhoda is distracted by sighting a new planet on the horizon. She collides with another car, killing the family of John Burroughs. Years later, upon her release from prison, Rhoda seeks redemption by visiting John's home, only to find a lonely, broken man. By now, it has been determined that the new planet is part of a parallel universe, an exact duplicate of our own, even peopled by our exact twins. However, when the two worlds interact, paths begin to diverge. Could it be possible to travel to the new planet? To take up a life not yet shattered by loss? Could Rhoda find absolution by starting over? Forget the preposterous science here and even the science fiction. The more intimate focus in another Earth is on the questions we ask ourselves every day. If I could begin again and do it right, what would I do? And if I could step outside myself and take a good look, whom would I see? Indie Film Minute. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. 
Stop Trump's GOP Systemic Abuse of Children and Our Checks and Balances. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. The Gettysburg Address. It's hard to imagine that even a third of we the 4th of July people being moved to act by what my fifth grade teacher told me are man's weakest excuses. It's so unfair. It's not my fault. To justify projecting one's prejudices onto others. Of course, choosing between half full or half empty determines our vision of what dreams may come. However, the results of the choices we make are eternally our fault. Taking responsibility for aborting Roe v. Wade, the bigotry of white supremacists, hate crimes like Matthew Shepard's murder, ICE child abuse, opiate addiction, private prisons profiteering from mass incarceration, racial discrimination, suicide by bullies, texting while driving, veteran homelessness, war for more, xenophobia, and yes-men for re-election can be a heavy burden to bear when simultaneously scorning the catalyst and outcome of our revolutionary and civil wars. So summon with me pragmatic brilliance. Democrats, stop dividing our imperfect party or we'll be conquered by tyranny, slipping by during the chaos of our infighting again. 2. Rejoice, for not all the women and mothers in recent multi-state marches were Democrats. Thus embrace common goals and uncommon female power. Invade Congress with calls, texts, emails, Facebook posts, tweets, podcasts. Notice, congressional members freely admit one in-person appearance is worth 1,000 votes. So carpool to D.C. congressional buildings, your congressperson's local state office, or even your governor's office, making all here the us in USA. Finally, let go of alternative facts claiming Anthony Kennedy was a liberal justice, because at best he was occasionally a reasonable conservative. Now let's get over it and get going. Let us unite for love, regardless of the platform from which it is launched, standing up and standing tall for all, on iPods, cell phones, laptops, and soapboxes, for all children, families, and the human decency of civil and human rights, granting justice for all, regardless of creed, heritage, or backstory. For thus united, not even the self-possessed Goliaths that caused America's great recession, nor the collusion between Trump and Justice Kennedy can destroy our checks and balances. For we, the reasonable people, pay it forward with forward-thinking possibilities, like a Democratic majority in both congressional houses, remembering that Congress has changed the number of Supreme Court justices six times before. So why not a lucky seven? We, the thinking people, must ask, is trusting a president who gives state secrets to Russians while making China great again, being bamboozled by Kim Jong-un and co-opted by Putin, patriotism? Or is it twisting America's Mother's Day, Memorial Day, and Independence Day into a swastika revival? Try this on for size.
if all human rights advocates united in one collective common cause, resurrecting the standards of Lincoln and JFK, Eleanor Roosevelt and Alice Paul, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Bobby Kennedy, and Maya Angelou, and, of course, Justices Sonia Sotomayor, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and Elena Kagan, we'd see beyond battling for black or white, rich or poor, male or female, gay or straight, and breathe the liberation of unity. Why, we might even grasp that America is not as divided as D.C. political rhetoric and national news media insist. Nonetheless, don't let us hesitate to dishonor the dishonorable pretenders, nor live to honor Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, the 14th Amendment, and what decency is left in America. Being indivisible, let us lead in peaceful assembly, not only in street protests, but in ballots cast, remembering any object president or government in motion stays in motion, with the same speed and the same direction, unless acted upon a we-the-balanced people force. Yes, there is little unity in our national reality show. Corporatism and GOP have incited a great uncivil war of words, especially with Tweedledee Jordan and Tweedledum Gowdy versus We the Courageous People, casting Robert Mueller and D.A.G. Rod Rosenstein as Margaret Chase Smith. However, electing liberal Democrats and insisting election results be transparent saves our exceptionalism from Mitch McConnell and can bestow a reprieve from a last hurrah with Trump gone with the wind. In memory of a stabbed-to-death three-year-old, we the loving people must save every child's future from those who don't. Because love will pull us out of this darkest hour, for love is love. Thank you, and join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.